folks, so let's let's come on in over here so we can uh, so we can do our our podcast in the in the live format as it was as God intended. <laughs> so, like, the neat thing is we're doing this live on Facebook as well as live in person. Uh, so we have the cameras set up and we've got the the video going. And if I speak into the microphone, people will actually end up hearing me on the stream, uh, which is great. Uh, and if you come on in here, we're not running the microphones through any kind of speaker or PA system, so you'll be able to hear better. Um, come on and, and fill in up here. And I know people are filling up on wine and cheese and bread and snacks, so that's great. Um, I'm excited about this. Uh, this is our third episode of the podcast, and our... It's uh, the last time we did it, we had, it was, we went like five or 600 views, which was awesome. And the whole concept here is, you know, uh, for those who are new to Dent, Dent is, it refers to this idea of putting a dent in the universe. And so we are, you know, constantly exploring what that means and, and, and learning more about what it takes to put a dent in the universe. And it turns out in a lot of cases that's, um, you know, there's a set of experiences or conversations, moments in people's lives that help uh, push people, uh, you know, towards some greatness. And we find that really fascinating. And so we like to dig into that. And we do that through a conference that we host every year and through a set of, you know, summits and dinners and other experiences throughout the year. And this uh, podcast began as just an opportunity to take some of what we do at Dent and do it on a more regular basis and kind of dig into, you know, because when you're doing a conference, you've got, you know, only so many sessions. And so this is a great way to kind of get into new topics and new people and new ideas and do it throughout the year and, and provide an opportunity for denters, which is what we call ourselves, to get together and, um, you know, further more conversations and ideas. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited that we have um, a really wonderful sponsor for the podcast. Uh, the sponsor is Wool and Prince. It's a clothing brand. They make uh, clothes out of really great wool. And the idea is to make a quality product that's going to last a lot longer. Wool has all of these magical properties, like it, uh, uh, it, you know, it keeps you a little warmer when it's cold out, and it, it actually does a pretty good job of keeping you cool when it's warm out. Uh, and the joke around the office is that I don't smell as bad as I used to. <laughs> Because, uh, <laughs> because it's pretty good with odor. But <laughs> even after wearing the same shirt but, <laughs> for three months, right? But it's a it's a it's a great product, and I've been a customer for uh, many months now, and I, I'm really glad that they're able to, to sponsor the show. And if you go to dentthefuture.com/wool, uh, you can go and check out the things that they have. Uh, as products, and you can use the code DENT when you check out to get 10% off your order. And I, I suggest you do it. You won't be disappointed. The, I guess we should go to the guest. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Michael, we have a guest tonight. Why don't you, um, I, I, one of the things we do at DENT is we avoid introductions in a lot of cases. Um, because it's usually a person talking for 10 minutes about something that nobody finds relevant. Oh. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, what you, how you describe what you do currently, and I'll, 
I'll tell people why I phrased it that way in a minute. But tell us why, how you describe what you do currently. I'm wondering why you phrased it that way. <laughs> uh, well, what I do currently, the position I have within, so I work for state government, and I've been in state government for about uh, 13 years now. And the position I have today is, uh, they call it deputy director for uh, an agency called Washington Technology Solutions, or WATEC for short. And in, in that particular role, part of my job is to lead portion of the organization, the operations. That agency delivers shared services to other state agencies, and specifically IT shared services, to other state agencies and nonprofits and cities and counties. And so part of my role is uh, as an executive leading portion of the organization. But the other part of my role is to innovate within that organization and within state broadly, more broadly, to figure out ways that the state government could be more effective in delivering its services. And so that's I mean, I'll start with that. Yeah, that's great. And so the reason I phrased it that way is because um, I, one of the things that you've tried with that's been innovative recently is uh, bringing something called holacracy to your organization. And there's a bunch of people who know what that is, but there's a bunch of people who don't. Yeah. Do you have kind of a, a succinct way to tell us what holacracy is? Uh, well, well, we'll find out. Uh, so, <laughs> so the way I describe holacracy in, in sort of this elevator pitch is it's essentially a different way to organize, uh, uh, different from a hierarchy, a hierarchical structure. So in a hierarchy, which is essentially a way that companies organize people to, to do whatever it is that they're trying to do, holacracy is a specific way of, instead of organizing people, you organize work. So it's an alternative mm, to... Okay to a hierarchy, um, but it's an organizational system to help an organization achieve whatever it is it's trying to achieve. And the, you know, the, um, the aspiration is that it's a system that is more empowering, more enabling, and can adapt to change more readily than a hierarchy. And, but it sort of resists the idea of titles, for example, and people yeah. being bosses of other people, for example. Right. And so, so that's why I was, okay, well, how do you describe what you right. do, right? Because you've right. been doing, so it's been a few, it's been a couple years of experimentation with Holacracy. Yeah, three. In yeah. a state, three years, yeah. in a state, envi state agency. Right. Um, how did this come about? Where did that start? Well, it was kind of um, the, one of the problems. So it just started when my position was actually a little bit different. And I was the uh, deputy CIO for the state of Washington. So it's the, you know, um, have a more, much more broader authority around all of state government in terms of technology strategy. And one of the problems that landed on my plate was how are we going to, as the employer, attract talent and retain talent, particularly tech talent, considering the fact that we compete with, why, why is that funny? You can't compete on <laughs> salary with Amazon is what you're telling me? Right, right, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, so we can't really compete on salary and, and even if we could, well, first of all, it sounds bad, right? It's like, oh, yeah, come to state government because we pay better. I mean, that, that's not really... <laughs> Wait, something. where's that money coming from? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that really works with exactly. the We pay top dollar. <laughs> right. So even if we could do that, it, as, a, as a citizenry, it's not something that we really would want from our government, right? right. We want people to work for government because they're there to make a difference and, and have an impact. Uh, but the reality is we compete for the same talent. And, and so if it's not on salary, what is? The, the you know value proposition, and through quite a bit of, of um, you know of work, I discovered a different. I, I I had an hypothesis on a different approach, and when you think about it, um, can I elaborate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do. 
So don't worry, I'll interrupt you okay, if I want to, and so right. will Steve. Because <laughs> I actually love talking about this, so I'll talk about this for at least forty minutes. Oh, that's uh oh. That's good. I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna take a nap. <laughs> no, so I was gonna say is that uh, the traditional pitch for governments, not just state government, but any government, the traditional pitch for potential employees is come to government because one, you have a job for life. Hmm. Two, uh, you come to government because we have better benefits. And then three, come to government because here you can make a difference. And so when you think about that pitch, two of those things aren't true anymore. So the job for life, well, one, people coming out of college don't look for a job for life anymore. That used to be a thing mm -hmm. for the traditional generation or the, gen, or the uh, baby boomers and maybe a little bit of the Gen Xers. But for the, for the uh, subsequent generations, a job for life just isn't something they're looking for. They're expected to job hop every two, three years. So if the main party value proposition is, hey, a job for life, it's just not going to resonate. It's going to fall flat. The second is benefits, particularly in tech. State government doesn't offer better benefits than Google or Amazon or Microsoft. And in the areas where you might argue they offer better benefits, they're based on uh, uh, length of service, right? Oh, right. We've already so you stated. Got, you got to put in the 20 right. years to get the, right. yeah. So two out of those three just aren't really relevant anymore. Now, the one that is relevant is purpose. And it's just, it's Even great. Even more so. Even more so. Yeah. Right, and particularly with the newer generations, it's much more a thing, yeah. okay? And what's interesting, when I thought about that, what's interesting about the sense of purpose is for government, it's, it's their unique value proposition. You can argue that other um, organizations have a strong purpose and, and strong, um, when I say sense of purpose, I'm really talking about is this sort of uh, impact on the community, right? Have a positive impact and, and uh, doing, doing good for the community. You could argue that there's some others out there that do that. For example, hospitals comes to mind. Saving lives must be probably, you know, like right. the purpose statement, right? But that purpose statement competes with also making money. And that just doesn't exist in government. That's that notion of, you know, for profit just doesn't exist. So it's really pure in government, this notion of doing, improving the community and making it better. So the value proposition that governments use just really hasn't been relevant. And the last one around the purpose, the sad truth is that people come to government to make a difference, to uh, to have an impact on their community. But often they get into that environment and they're not empowered to actually do that. So that is kind of what started leading me down this path of what is the value proposition for government? How can we have, what's a different pitch? Uh, and if purpose and having and making a difference is something that people draw and are drawn to, how can we make that real in government? And so then what, well, you I have a question. You have so you, there. first of all, you were the driver behind this, the execution, uh, the transformation yes. of the team yes. to Holacracy. How many humans were affected by this? How many people in the organization? The, uh, the people that were directly um, using Holacracy to manage their work were roughly 120 people. Okay. People affected, there's probably quite a bit more, but <laughs> positively <laughs> and negatively. I, I... So, so this, you said, hey, this looks really cool. I've heard about it. We've got a couple things we can do. One is I believe it will be, it will be more attractive to um, the younger folks yeah. to be in, in an organization doing this. Um, also, it's a good experiment. Yeah. And the, one of the things that we know from working with our community members is that we've learned this from at the conference, et cetera, is most of them are run high in creativity. Yeah and this drive to innovate. 
many of them are embedded within large organizations that want that to happen, but also at the same time stifle it. So the fa in my mind, the fact that you were able to say, I've got this a transformative idea that may work, may not work, let's do it. The, the fact that you got the state to try it at that scale, 120 people is sort of non-trivial. I mean, it's trivial for the state, but that's quite a few people. I'm assuming you met a ton of resistance. Yeah, there were a couple of points of resistance along the way. Uh, and so what's your question? So here's, sorry, the question <laughs> is, um, one, how did you convince them? And two, um, how do you navigate the waters of being inside a bureaucratic entity sure. as a creative right. humanoid? Yeah, and I, and I, I kind of sense in your question, um, like how is this, a, how is it, my experience, how is that applicable in other organizations that have small innovative groups that are dealing with their bureaucracy and how can they kind of get, yeah. get started, yeah. right? Okay. So there's parts of the answer which are, um, are probably less relevant, but maybe there's, but it's, I think it's still useful to know. So the, the approach to finally getting to 120 people was, it took over a year to get to that point. Okay. And it, so it was a very methodical approach, starting with me hearing about this thing called holacracy from my work in the Agile community. Someone mentioned this. I was actually um, look, I was doing some research on other companies and what are they doing to attract some talent and you know, and I came across an a employee manual from Valve, and I'm reading this employee manual and I I just I couldn't believe it. I, I you know here's Valve as a company in the region, right? Uh, that has 500 and so employees and they've never had a manager. And they're one of the most successful software companies um, uh, out there. And they're in the region and we compete for the same talent. And so this is, you know, what I'm dealing with. So as I'm telling the story, one of my Agile friends mentioned Alocracy. And, and so that the beginning of that resistance was my own resistance, which is like, what the heck is this thing? I don't know anything about it. I it was put it on a post-it note after I figured out how to spell it. And I stuck it on my monitor. And then you know, a month or two later, um, I started doing some research on it. And the very first article that I saw was an article in Harvard Business Review that said, um, well, actually, no more managers. And my first reaction when I read that was, well, if there's no managers, who do people complain about? <laughs> And, and, and then my second reaction is... Maybe it's nobody. You know, maybe it's nobody. I was like, well, what did you do? <laughs> Half your day. I don't understand. The customers. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not just crazy yeah. talk. So uh, my second reaction is we are also a state that has represented workers. So we're unionized, you know, different, yeah. you know, different, uh, several different unions represented. So the second thought was, well, if there's no managers, like who's in the union? And, and who's not? Is it like everyone's in the union or is there no one in the union? Both of those things are non-starters, right? Mm. So it, it really was something that I was starting to dismiss early on. So the first point of resistance was my own sort of constraints around how we think about these things. Fortunately, or unfortunately, I decided to, before I completely dismiss it, I need to take a class and better understand this thing. So I took a class in Texas uh, where they had this training for this week-long class to get certified as a practitioner. And I took the class to learn more about what this thing was. And partway through this class, it, it became obvious that, yes, this is a thing. And not only could it work, because it's never been done in government before. So this is the first state to actually implement holacracy. Globally? Globally in the world, yes. So, never, so not only is it, <clears throat> is it a thing, 
And I believed not only would it work in government, it actually would work better in government than in private industry. And if you're interested in knowing why, you can ask me that question. I, I'm going to ask that question. Oh, yeah. Okay, just no, cue it up. I'm, I'm going to. Oh, that's my <laughs> No, you. Okay, you take I'll take so the, the So that was the first point of resistance. But then, as you imagine, in government, it's, it's already distributed. I'm starting, to lead, I'm starting to answer this question. Government is already naturally a distributed authority system. You have the three, you know, the, 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 um, the three, yeah, the branches, the three branches of government, right? The legislative, the executive, thank you very much, and pop quiz. Uh, <laughs> so you have, so it's already distributed, and the, and the governor, of course, leads the executive branch, but you look at executive agencies, they don't all report to the governor. Some are separately elected, some are elected by, or selected by commissions, right? So it's, it's a really distributed system already. Uh, and the, <laughs> and in any, and in government, there's, in a lot of decisions, it requires a really consensus. And so for this kind of a thing, it really requires only one person to say no and to raise their hand and call foul. So part of my journey was in talking with the Attorney General's office, this thing even legal in government, <laughs> and trying to get their support, talk to the state HR policy office to get their support, talk with labor leaders to get their support. So there's a lot of trying to get support, you know, building this guiding coalition, Cotter would say, and, uh, and then also having the support of my direct Supervisor, uh, the CEO of the CIO of the state. So um, there's there's so many different sources of uh, resistance, and even people themselves, individual you know, people in the right. organization. Yeah. yeah, resistance to change in yeah. general. Right. You know what might be useful before we I ask him that question that no, <laughs> is um, maybe just describe quickly what a holocratic organization sure. looks like. Yeah. Uh, so you're asking, what does it look like from what view? Like Employee. Let's say I'm an, an employee. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. an employee. It actually, interestingly enough, it doesn't look that different. Um, the, the things that are make it very similar is even in a hierarchy, the, we have a position, we fill that position, and we do the work of that position. But we tend to also do a bunch of other work. Uh, we tend to do a bunch of um, uh, work that's not really articulated anywhere, right? We're the, right. We're the champion of this, we're the, you know, the yeah. glue over here. And so we end up wearing multiple hats, and it's um, undifferentiated work in a, in a hierarchy. In a holacracy, the whole point of it is to make work explicit and to take all undifferentiated work and, and make it very clear. So, uh, you know, in the, in the hierarchy, I'm a deputy director of the organization. I have responsibilities over money and other things, but I'm also a coach. I'm also there to help people, you know, with their professional development, right? I'm also, um, I'm trying to think of other examples. I'm also maybe a, um, person who, and on the side here, I'm working on advocacy for Agile. Okay. In a holacracy, those would actually be specific roles that would, that would exist, that there'd be a role called Agile advocacy. It'd be clear about what the purpose of that role is. And would you create that role for yourself? The, um, the holacracy specifically has a system by which the team oh, creates geez. roles. So I might propose a role, but the team um, itself, you know, I don't have the authority to just make roles. Like, I have the authority to propose roles. I'd be roles. water cooler guy. You can't do that. You so one of my roles consensus. is pencil whip. So that's okay. almost as cool as water cooler. Okay. But pencil whip has the, the purpose <laughs> of rapidly processing bureaucracy. Oh. And so here's 
because there's certain things in government that I have to sign because of my position. No right. one else can sign it, right? So they have to come to me, and I just sign those things. I pencil whip it, and they, and the it's an important piece of how we get work done. So there's metrics on how quickly I do that work. So the team measures the speed at which I I whip my pencil, and re, and I report out on it every week. So that's kind of fun. So that's one way it's different, is that the work becomes, the roles are, are much more explicit, and the teams are, um, they, they engage in, how, in the definition and the purpose of those roles. And so in the holacracy, you know, I'm the deputy director in the hierarchy, in holacracy I fill 40 roles. So I'm going to jump in because that raises a question for me, which is kind of interesting. There, you're describing a system that, for holacracy, which I think generates some interesting conundrums, especially around things like legal responsibility when something happens, um, which is your pencil whipping, mm -hmm. and or doesn't happen, and uh, salaries and stuff like that. And so it seems to me like what you have maybe is actually put a lot of holacracy into this funky relationship with a hierarchy, like it's a a holacracy within a hierarchy. Sure. And you may be able to coast off some of the benefits of having an external, something imposed from the standpoint of like, okay, well, we know that, you know, Michael signed that document, and if this goes to court, um, that's a piece of evidence. Yes. Versus, like, I don't know, the team, you know, decided to do that, and or whatever else might come up with holacracy. Like, mm -hmm. how, I mean, are there... I don't know, would you like play with that a little bit, like sure. as an idea and, and yeah, what do yeah. you think? Yeah, I think um, using Holacracy specifically, first of all, there's multiple self-management systems out there and, and I'm most versed at Holacracy. So in answering this kind of question, I, you know, I can speak to it just, just Holacracy. So at the end of the day, uh, so in, the, in my role as deputy director, I have a certain amount of authority and accountability to run this division within this agency. Uh, how I run that division is purely up to me, but I still have that accountability and authority, okay? So, for example, the pencil whip captures the work of me signing documents. Um, how I choose to vet and trust and, and, and the process by which I achieve that accountability, like, it's, it's pretty up to me and I can't really, you know, diffuse that authority. Right, or that accountability. So legal documents, so for example, contracts, uh, I fill a, a role called contract captain. And so in that role, um, part of it is in, you know, doing the, dealing with contracts. Uh, the difference is the work of that role is made explicit. And why I'm feeling that, why I'm doing that work of that contract, it's very transparent as to why I'm doing it and what's expected of me while I'm filling that role or why anyone else is filling that role. So it doesn't, the accountability doesn't go away. It's not like I can, you know, diffuse that. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said. I mean, uh, what, but what's an example of why? Is the why because that you have in the structure, the superstructure of government, you're the one with the authority? Or is there a different why? Uh, why for what? For why you're doing that role. Oh, the, right? the contract like in, captain or the right, pencil yeah. yeah. Say contract yeah. captain. If there's a reason you're doing the sure, work, sure. is the reason, well, there's the superstructure that says right. Michael has to do it. So the, the pencil whip, I'll give you a clear example. The pencil whip um, in, the, in the state system, I'm considered an appointing authority, and that's a particular term in law. And okay. so the, the, um, only I can do certain things because of law. Okay, Only I can hire and fire people. People can, um, you know, 
go through. They can be part of the evaluation team and they can propose, you know, this person be hired and fired. Um, but I, at the end of the day, am the one that has to hire and fire. Now, to use that as an example, so that I'm the person that has to sign that document. But how we hire and fire, I can, can define whatever process I want. Oh, I see. Okay. So, yeah, okay. I got gotcha. you. So I, and we have a uh, process uh, that includes value-based hiring and other things where people say, D'Angelo, this is the person we want to hire. I'm like, sure, whatever. I mean, you guys know best. You're the one working with yeah. them. You're the one that evaluated them, right? Mm -hmm. I trust your judgment and, and, and sign that. But then I'm accountable. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That, no, that's a good example. This is part of a research project, right? Um, it, it probably you're speaking to the Harvard Business right. School research. I wanted okay. to yeah. just delve into that aspect yeah. of what it's you're not doing. part of a research project, but the the research is something that um, we, we we engage with Harvard Business School researchers to um, help us understand holacracy in state government. And I can elaborate more, but yeah, Our, the purpose of what we're doing is not for Harvard Business School research. <laughs> no, the, no. The purpose is to solve this problem, and we've worked with Harvard Business School researchers to help us get data around it. And you, it's, what, three years now? Yeah. So the data is significantly in on how this works, I'm assuming. So the experiment, so we, uh, let me kind of explain how that came well, let about. Me, let me just okay. also, my and maybe I'm projecting here, but I would assume that the government is looking at what you're doing mm -hmm. and eager to see how it turns out. And I'm assuming some, yeah. potentially they could, <laughs> they could decide to expand the program into other departments or groups. It's that, that could be one path, yes. Yes. So anyway. <laughs> um, or I, not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd be interested in what conclusions have been drawn after yeah. three years and what are next steps. Sure, sure. Okay, so the experiment itself only lasted for a year, and it finished last July, so a year ago. Okay. Okay. So the first year up to, you know, sort of the rough timeline, I spent a year um, experimenting in a group of 20, and then um, trying to get understand it, starting to have these conversations with these various stakeholders, and then in this large organization, setting up um, a much broader experiment, because you can only extrapolate the data from 20 people, you know, in a very limited way. And one of, one of the things I was trying to assess, like I said, is, is this a system that can help us attract and retain talent? Is this a system that um, allows us to create a systemically empowering environment? Uh, and is it a system that can adapt? Can, it, can employees operate faster and adapt to change quicker, right? So there's, so, so um, Harvard Business School researchers have, were researching this topic and this, uh, what we were doing created an opportunity for us to partner. And it's the only uh, controlled experiment ever done on holacracy where we had part of the organization running a hierarchy, another part of the organization running holacracy. So we had a control group and a treatment group, they refer okay. to it, and, and collected data on both groups. They're still analyzing the data. And what, so one of the things I learned is that uh, academic timelines are similar to, to geologic timelines. <laughs> and so the, I'm still, you know, they need to spend the time of the day. This stuff is, you know, important stuff, and it, and it matters to the, to the researchers that they get it right. And so they're still researching that. I can share other data, that some uh, data that they've shared that were anecdotal, and, and other data that we collected, if that would be helpful. Yeah, I'd I think it. yes. Okay, yeah. and then I have some other questions about. I'm assuming exactly yeah, employee retention maybe was a. Was yeah, so there's like data around 
employee retention, which is actually ultimately the point. Right. Right. <laughs> that was my question. Like, well, are you but it's but related to that is like do, when you're hiring. So there's retention, but there's also hiring. Yes. Really, it was attracting talent. Yeah, I mean, and but in if fact, if you're hiring someone. Yeah. Are you competing with the other half of your division to hire? Well, like, we're competing with. Meaning, like, yeah, but during yeah. the experiment, right? Because the point is, can I hire yeah, better right. than? Then you have a real yeah. control group. But and then it, the smart, the smart guys, like I'm, or, you know, <laughs> so, some smart new potential employee is like, wait, I can fly the same department off of each other. Yeah, right. I can get different offers from different <laughs> halves of the department. So to uh, just be transparent, I focus more on the attracting and less on the retaining, which actually creates a lot of retentions uh -huh. when I share that with other people. Because some people have been in state government for a long time, and they, um, they care about being retained. I'm looking forward and looking at you know, what are the things we, can, what things we can put in place today to position us for the future. Right? So I, I tend to spend more time on the attracting side. But uh, to, give you, to share some data, like around the attracting talent, so uh, there's, God, there's several. So one of the things that, so the most recent data uh, as comparison is we not only to compete within our own you know, agency, although that feels less like competition because we share resources quite a bit, we compete with other state agencies. There's other state agencies that have tech talent, you know, developers or business analysts or whatever. And we also compete with the private uh, organizations. So here's one story that's fun. So we are, we're hiring what we refer to as agile business analysts, because we have a focus on agile. But we're hiring business analysts, and another agency was also hiring business analysts at the exact same time, the exact same position, the exact same salary. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the candidates apparently interviewed at the other agency, and they found out about it. The candidate mentioned it. And they said, oh, yeah, I also applied over at, at Watech. So the hiring manager called us, and they said, uh, um, hey, did you interview this, this guy? And, and we said, yeah. And they said, well, what did you think? You know, how, how well did he do? And he said, well, he made it in our top 10. And they said, top 10? How many candidates did you get? So we got 38. They got three. Hmm. So hmm. the that's telling. That's telling, right? So yeah. there's a 10x increase in, in, in candidates applying. And the only difference is the name of our agency and, how we, and what we do and how we talk about what we do. So that's one piece of data, and there's actually been a couple of examples of that. Another piece of data around um, attracting talent is one of the things that we, that we did in the, in the early days when we were um, setting this up is when we had candidates that applied, candidates from outside the state government, and they applied uh, for the job, if, they turned us, if we made them an offer and they turned us down, we would call them back and interview them again to find okay. out like what was... We wanted to know what was their experience. Like, where did they apply for jobs? You know, are, we apply, are we posting in the right places? You look at getting ready to say something or ask a question. Nope. Oh, okay. And so we, we had this, you know, another half hour interview that I did along with our HR department. And from that, we collected a bunch of data around these candidates. And so one of the questions I, uh, as they're telling their story, one of the things that was fairly universal is when we asked about why they applied for this government job, the government job was the backup to their backup. So they applied at Amazon, they applied yeah. at Microsoft, they applied at state government. And just in case the Amazon thing didn't work out or the Microsoft thing, at least maybe they got this government job. And so that was one, that was a universal truth. Another universal truth was after they learned about our, our you know, who we actually were and what we did and holacracy and our, we have workspace initiatives and where we changed the actual physical environment, a bunch of other things. Uh, 
one candidate, he literally almost fell out of his chair when you're, because he had no idea state government could be right. that innovative, right? And every single candidate that we interviewed said that the state job became their number one job out of the Amazons, the Microsofts. Oh. Now, that being said, they still didn't accept our offer. Yeah. <laughs> so we made them an offer. They didn't accept it. And why do you think they didn't accept it? Sal salary, salary, I would salary. guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they uh, didn't, they told us, yeah, we didn't, I, we ended up not taking it because... See, I love it, but not 40 grand. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Which is exactly what they said. 40 grand actually was the number. <laughs> so it was average between 30 and 40 grand, to which I asked the following question. You know, can you guess what my follow-up question was? Well, how much would, <laughs> would it have been worth? <laughs> what is yeah, that delta? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So how much of a pay cut would you be willing, willing to take yeah. in order to work here? Yeah. And that number ended up being roughly around fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year. And so, wow, that's significant, though. Except yeah. it gets better. So I asked one candidate, well, when I had to ask that question, he, um, he missed, I don't think he completely understood what I said. And he says, well, I, I thought you guys offered us the most you could offer us. And I said, well, it's true. We offered you at the top of that pay scale. I said, but we might be able to um, reclassify the position. But even if we did, the most I could offer you is $26,000 less than the company you just moved to. Right. And his response was, where do I sign? And he left the company. Oh, we did. Wow. And came to work in state government for a twenty-six thousand dollars pay cut because of the work environment. So you take well, that twenty. So he cited really holacracy as the. He cited driver. the the collect the ecosystem of the environment, which included holacracy. Yes, okay. but it's also the physical space, the modern technology, the innovation, the, the agile practice. Okay, so. Remember, the purpose, holacracy isn't like the silver bullet to no. attracting and retaining talent. It is a piece of a much larger strategy that's about creating a culture where people are empowered, so they can come to work and they enjoy work, they feel energized. It's, yeah, it's about I think that. that's, that's kind of a good story because I think obviously holacracy is, has, has had some issues over the years with organizations working to implement it. Uh, Medium was the poster child early on for it, and, I, and they've largely gone away from it. Um, I, I haven't kept an inventory, but it, it hasn't stuck with a number of organizations. And maybe that would be something you could address is why you think it doesn't work for everybody. And well, let me ask you first. If you were to, sorry, if you were to <laughs> be transplanted to a new 120-person organization, public or private sector, and you had the option to flip the switch to go to holacracy there, would, would you do it? Uh, I can't unlearn what I've learned. I will never work in an organization where I cannot actually operate okay. holacracy in it. Okay. Yeah, it's just... So maybe you could step into why you think um, it was, the, some organizations view it as a failed experiment. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know which organization you're talking about or what's the data behind why it was, you know, failed for them. But I think the, in general, uh, holacracy is not something you can just take off the shelf and stick it in your organization. It's a yeah. major organizational change management initiative. And it forces people, in order for holacracy to be successful, I think it, you have to uh, have a mindset shift that allows you to, to think of things differently. And the organization's ability and the capacity for that mind shift to happen is, is gonna, I think the bigger the organization is, the harder, they lower the probability of them being able to make that mind shift change. And to give you some examples, um, there's some things that we do uh, in a hierarchy that 
some might say are healthy habits. Um, and one example is maybe you're in a meeting and, oh, God, there's still the data I want to share. That's amazing. But anyway, so maybe um, you're in a meeting and uh, we're talking about a topic, but a, but a person, but you think that this topic is actually going to cause, cause this person over here some grief. So, hey, well, what the heck? And with this person here, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact their work. It's gonna, so you might come to this person's aid, right, to help them out because you guys are buddies, right? That is uh, something that's fairly common in a hierarchy for people to sort of help each other out and, and speak for each other. That's actually offensive in a holacracy context. And the reason, does that? Yeah. No, go. Does it? Uh, so first of all, does my premise sound reasonable that that's something that would happen in a hierarchy, and that you've seen that happen? That's what people do. And do people support each other. Yeah, and advocate on other people's well, behalf. Like, no, I don't. No. Want, I don't want to see this guy get stuck with it. He's my buddy. I don't yeah. want him to get stuck with yeah. it. Yeah, is that something you guys I seen? And it really depends on the organization. Sure, sure, sure. Every organization is different. Yeah. Have you seen that in, in higher courts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've seen that. So that is actually offensive in holacracy because essentially what that is saying is this person is incompetent and oh. can't speak for themselves, right. Right? right? And so one of the sort of tenets of holacracy is you're there to represent your tensions and that's it. I'm not there to represent his issues, the, the you know, tensions he has in the organization. I'm there to represent mine and I'm re the, the roles that I fill, right? The, I'm here to represent the tensions of the roles that I fill. Another, um, then I'll, I see you want to say something. The other one I'll say before that, another example that I see often is having a meeting and uh, someone has an idea, they put it forth, uh, and then there tends to be a lot of discussion and people have their own opinions about this particular idea, even though the idea doesn't impact them, they have no stake in the idea, no. that, uh, you know, it has, yeah. it, they have no accountability for it, right? They may not have the right expertise or Right, the right expertise, yeah. but everyone Local feels knowledge. like... And this is here again, it's organization organization. But everyone feels like um, they have a right to voice their, their it's the, opinion. It's the chicken and the pig. Yes, right? you know, the chicken and pig, the, exactly. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. one's it's invested. The, one, yeah, yeah right. The chicken and the pig are going to open right. a breakfast joint. So that's an example <laughs> of something. like, yeah, you're invested. Yeah, yeah I'm committed. committed. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah so the, uh, that's an example of something. Another, here again, in, in holacracy, there are particular principles that you just don't do that because you don't you have to in order to um there's space for you to react to things but at the end of the day the only way you can um change someone's idea or influence how that idea moves forward uh, uh is to if you can articulate how based on known data that idea is going to impact one of your roles right there's this bias towards action so, in, in particularly in our organization in government, and government has a sort of a fear-based um, sort of leadership approach where everyone is afraid of what might be in the news above the you know above the fold it's called, uh, and so there's there's a there's a tendency towards consensus where we don't do anything unless we all agree that it's a good idea, and at Larksy it's the. It's inverse. funny you bring up bias for action because it, um, repeatedly over the past 12 months we've interviewed several people. Um, significantly inventors that are also entrepreneurs yeah, right. and they say it's critical the bias yeah, for action right. in both of their cases uh, it was I just went to the hardware store and started buying stuff and started putting it together just right. to get the just to get something started right. so right. yeah we that's I think organizations at large could use it's, more of that. It's a natural thing when you're a small organization yeah. it's something that I think a lot of organizations lose with size Right, they lose that spirit. That sort of, you know, unless they're deliberate in terms of how they 
create right. that culture. Well, you, we want to talk about the data. Sorry. We got yeah, me. let's give you a chance to do that. Because then I want to change topics, and then I want to do the other thing, and then we got to let the audience ask. Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay so cool. we've got Good. a lot There's of an stuff audience still. Participation. Okay. But yeah, what? Tell, yeah, tell us about the data. Okay, so some of the earlier, <laughs> um, some of the earlier data that we started capturing, we're still capturing it today. Is when I started this, I I need I needed to figure out like how I'm going to be asked like why are you doing this and what difference does it make and I don't like what you're doing, so. <laughs> I needed to come up with some, you know, way to say, well, it's it's helped us in this or that way, right, or that way, and understand at that particular stage in, in my experience um, in, in the story, I was coming at it from an agile perspective, an agile organization perspective. So I was thinking of agile measurements. So I was thinking of happiness and velocity and you know those quality and those sorts of things, right? And the only um, two measures that I could think of that I were, that I, I could measure in the holacracy, one was velocity, and the other was happiness. And so the, I asked, so at every meeting, weekly meetings, every meeting I asked the question, um, I, I can't actually remember the question because we changed it now, but it's something to the effect of, you know, to, if we did a fist to five. To what degree in a one to five scale um, are you, you know, happy in your ability to, you know, get work done or whatever? And the other uh, thing we measured is the speed at which we could discuss things and make decisions about them. So, um, you know, we've all been in meetings where you've, talk about something for an hour, and at the end of the meeting, you finally make a decision, and that is to add that item to the agenda on the next meeting. Right? Yeah. So we've had those. Right. But the, the typical, what we started measuring at the very beginning is, on average, we could bring up um, three topics in a one-hour meeting, so about 20 minutes to bring up a topic, discuss it, and then make some decision about it. Uh, within six months, the average time for us to bring up a topic, discuss it, and make a decision on it was two minutes. And to this day, it's we're two to three minutes on average, okay? And, and there's a reason why that's fast, and that's probably running through your mind as to how to get so fast. The other, and you can ask me in a second, but the other uh, on the happiness one, which is sort of funny about that, I'm sharing, so I'm getting those questions, right, that I thought I would get. So I'm sharing, well, here we got this data, we got this happiness, and we got this velocity, and look at the velocity, it's amazing, it's up by this percent, and, and, and employees are happy. And literally, this is what I heard from the, the you know, people that want to sort of, you know, question what I'm doing, is why are you measuring happiness? The point, <laughs> it, is, it is, we do not hire people for them to be happy. We hire them to do work. Uh, I mean, seriously? Like, you don't understand that happiness is actually, is actually a force multiplier, really? So we changed that metric to an empowerment metric. And, I, and the question now no. is, to what degree do you feel empowered to resolve your own issues, own impediments. And so that went from 60%, the power metric from 60% at the beginning to 90% now pretty consistently. So 50% increase in empowerment. And this is after, and you know, for me as a leader, I thought I'm like the most powering person I could be, yet I still only get 60% of you know, employees only felt like they were 60% empowered. Uh, so it wasn't until after we impl implemented Holacracy where they, um, the empowerment went up. So that's actually too good of a segue to leave it aside. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you a little bit about leadership in the context of holacracy. Um, there's a typical point of view about leadership, and um, Siri keeps talking to me. <laughs> is Siri uh, plugged into uh, uh, Facebook Live? Hitting my, uh, is she asking questions? Or is my, it the button back <laughs> like, um, Why aren't you asking about <laughs> Siri has better questions. Maybe she has better answers, too. Which, what is that? The, um, yes, like, what, what is your take on leadership, and in particular in the context where, uh, you know, where authority is so interestingly divided? 
right, in a, in a holacracy. So, you know, you've gone from a setting where it's like you're you're the authority. You make a decision. Um, you, you know how you know you have a view of leadership in that role. And now that you've had three years of working in this sort of uh, environment, yeah. how has that changed your view of leadership? So I think God, there's so much there. Um, yeah, sorry, it's another hour. <laughs> the uh, the things that the topics that come to mind with that question for me, one is like as a leader, how have I had to change and adapt in order to uh, you know really um, embrace this self management and this um, you know holacracy. That's like one. That's kind of like one set of questions. And there's also this question about what type of what does it take as a leader in order to have a, you know to lead. Self because I'm still a leader in the organization. I just lead differently, right? I lead as a coach. I lead. I lead uh, that's still my value as, as, as a leader. So um, I think the way I'll answer that question is uh, I've observed through this experience a bunch of other leaders going through their challenges and their struggles. And what I've come to conclude and I've, I've gotten this question about, like, is there an age bias? Is it is holacracy, for example, harder for someone who's older? Or is it, mm-hmm. you know? And I have not found an age bias at all. What I found as a bias is leadership style. So if leaders uh, in the organization are servant leaders, right? They're, they're there to serve and to help um, the employees do better and that sort of thing. They're more likely to be successful in holacracy than other types of leaders. I've encountered some leaders which they like leadership because they like the power. Mm. They like the they like the directing of, of people. They um, they're there for other reasons. Uh, so those people struggle because um, because there's you know it's a distributed authority system where people are have the full authority to do the work in their roles. Now ironically, <laughs> and this is true of servant leadership too. If you're a good servant leader, you actually have a tremendous amount of influence. In your in your organization, right? Sure. I would argue that my power is actually greater now than it was before, because not only are people looking to me for advice, it's sincere, right? They're not asking me for permission. Oh, they yeah. actually are. When they take, when you give them advice, they're and they're more prone to actually do it. The more likely to integrate into, my advice yeah, right. with their own um, ideas and make it better, right? Right. In the hierarchy, they're more likely to take my advice and do it because I'm oh, still the boss right, right, and this right. sort of thing, right? So it's, it's interesting that um, in many ways um, I feel like I have more power. The second thing that's been true, and, and this is another data point I forgot until just now, is that when, oh, this is depressing. So before I adopted Holacracy, I used a, a personal scrum board to manage my work. And I had swim lanes that represented the major areas of change I was trying to drive within state government. And one of the swim lanes said other other crap is actually what it said. Uh, but I had as there a little, I had a little quote there that says, maximize what not to do in this swim lane. So it was like drive, just like only do the bare minimum in that swim lane. And I tracked how much work I was doing in each of these you know, initiatives and this one swim lane. And what I collected over about four months worth of data is that 90% of my time was in this other crap, huh. and it was not in actually driving change. And I had that board, and I just became, so then we started using Holacracy, and I kept the same board. Yeah. irrespective of Holacracy, just to track my work. That number went down from 90, went down to 20%. And the reason I had all of a sudden a lot more capacity. And the reason why I had a lot more capacity is because I spent a lot of time doing undifferentiated work. Meaning the work that no one else wanted to do, 
because it didn't fit in their job description. And so there's a lot of work in the gaps. And if no one, if it's not in their job description, then right. Why who, who they, does it? Yeah. Right? It's, it's me or I got to figure it out. It's like my problem all of a sudden, even though I may not even care about it. So um, Holacracy makes that undifferentiated work very explicit. And now people have an opportunity to actually help in that area. So, I've, cool. I've got, sorry, two, yeah, more, two metrics that I want to ask you about. If, if you it. track them, if you know, or can give me some at least anecdotal. Amount of time spent doing email before yeah. and after. Yeah. And amount of time in meetings before oh, and man. after. Okay, the second one, I've got absolute raw data for that. So, okay. Um, and the data that I've already shared is somewhat related, right? So we can process on average now two to three minutes per issue. But the structure, the Holoxy meeting structure is very precise. And one of the things that makes makes meetings faster and more efficient is because in, in the most hierarchical situations, uh, the you spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's actually accountable for this thing. Who's going to get stuck with this thing? And you're hoping it's not you, and you're afraid to say something because, you know, it might... So there's a lot of um, work trying to not end up with more work. So <laughs> in Holacracy, the uh, the who's accountable for what is extremely explicit. There's no discussion about who's accountable for it. So the conversations and meetings are about what it is I need in order to get that thing done, which maybe it's information, maybe I need you to do something, right? But it's very explicit and it's just recapturing that. So that's why it's so fast, because we don't waste time talking about who's gonna get stuck with it uh, and who has the authority to make the decisions about it. Now, as a result, our meetings are fast. So if we only have five issues, and this is fairly common, if we only have five things to discuss, our meetings five is 10 minutes long. So we often have meetings, we schedule an hour, hour and a half, because we also do governance meetings, which is something different. But we, we have, you know, we'll schedule an hour, an hour and a half meeting, and it's very common for us to be done at the end of 15 minutes. And when we're done, we're done. And we just go back to work. There isn't this sort of, well, we got to just talk about this thing for another. So what do you, what do you see as your total reduction in terms of Per average per employee time spent in meetings, 50%? <laughs> uh, I'd be making up a number if I were to oh, try okay. to say right. that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's your feeling about email, time spent doing email? So the, I think, so the problem with that, I have actually have metric on that data, uh, but I, the problem is it's commingled with other things. So in addition to Holoxy, we also changed our physical space to make it more collaborative. And then we saw an email reduction from 30 to 50% per person, okay. depending on the person. Okay. Okay. So um, some of that is a result of the fact that it's more collaborative, the workspace. Right. Some of that is because it's more, we're clear on who's supposed to do what, so we don't have role a lot clarity, of- Role clarity. Yeah, role clarity, so we just don't have that, you know, we don't spend a lot of, waste a lot of time talking about that. Okay. So, due to my poor time management, um, we're almost done. Sweet. And so I think what we're going to do is we're going to kind of uh, finish up on a couple of things. We're going um, to have people ask questions? Uh, we'll have a little... First, we're going to do um, a segment that we've done every episode so far, um, which has been really fun, and you were gracious enough to participate in. So uh, we also have a, a, a partner on this uh, podcast called The Collective. It's this beautiful uh, new uh, social collective in South Lake Union in Seattle. And they're sort of reinventing the idea of a social club in the you know, world of uh, you know, modern uh, city life. 
and they've built this wonderful space. And one of the things they have in here is a giant bouldering wall. And a lot of what we do at Dent in like a lot in in very intentional ways is to bring people into uh, interesting shared experiences, especially if they're outside of their comfort zone a little bit. Um, with new people, because that kind of thing uh, tends to spark the imagination and tends to spark the mind. And so we've taken this opportunity to ask our guests if they would like to climb the bouldering wall. It and so we've an had... It was an option? We've yeah. had... It was an option. <laughs> but... <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it's free choice. It's like the Matrix. You can choose to, you know, or not. Right. Um, and so we've had, so we've had two, yeah, which pill? So we've had two guests so far do the climbing wall, and then today we had you. And so what I'd like to do is, you went up the wall three times, uh, and we have uh, we have footage of your best climb. Is this where? Is this the point where I explain all the all my and impediments and <laughs> no, why just, it was so bad? Or? No excuses. Oh. We're just gonna watch it. <laughs> we're gonna see how you did. So uh, I think we can throw it up on the screen here, and uh, and also on the stream as well. We'll see how you did going up the wall. So here he is, it's the route, he's got to step on on the blue uh, and hold on to the blue handholds only. That's the way the, yeah, the blue pill, that's, that's the way it works. And you can see there's one kind of around the corner. Uh, as you come up, you're gonna, I think you grabbed it, there you go. And you, you're pushing up with your legs, very nice. It's good technique. There you go. Re repositioning weight is always a big part of, uh, of climbing the wall. Oh, a big one. And oh, you, get your both, you get your hand up there on the top, and that was it. That was All your right. that was your route up the wall. And so got out. That was that was impressive, wasn't I? You, yeah. you went. That's a good <laughs> height up. So our previous guests, uh, Rick Smith and Martina uh, Welkoff, did uh, the route in 24 and 26 seconds, and so you oh. did it in 30.33. So you're number three on the leaderboard, but you know what? That's, <laughs> That's good, because there's going to be like 40 people on there eventually. So, so you'll be, be taking on the be, Dent board doing, game edition. <laughs> is, there, doing great. is there like a senior category or something? Or I don't know. Get a, get a different category. Yeah, right. Well, so what is, here's, here's the excuse you do get to give, which is this was your first time on a wall ever. Never been on a wall. Which, and I'm, I've been I up against a wall, but that's a different story. <laughs> that's when we turn the cameras off. The, um, no, I think you did great. That was very. Uh, it was very I well done. To do it for, <laughs> for well, the first time. I, I, I achieved my goal, which yeah. was to not die. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That's well. We we were initially talking about it, and we were going. Well, maybe we should measure how far up people want to go. But we realized we're going to have some guests that are just going to go right up the wall. So yeah. we need to have some other metric. So, yeah. 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 Uh, no, that was great. Thank you. It wasn't until my third attempt where I felt like I could actually try to try to do it. At do a, something at a pace. At a pace. Yeah, a little yeah. bit better. No, you yeah. did great. Um, and so the, I want to, before we allow the audience either online or in the room to ask probably only like one question because I want to be respectful of the clock, um, is, I want to do a, a final note is we have uh, a final sponsor uh, which is Bootstrapper Studios which is running the cameras and the technology and the video for this broadcast and they do a really great job with video yes, for do. events and, and video for uh, explaining products or kickstart or whatever you want to do uh, you should talk to the Bootstrapper Studios folks um, they've been doing the Ignite videos for 
in Seattle for like a decade since it started. Um, and they're, anyways, they're excellent folks, and we're really glad to have them working with us on this. Um, so, Steve, it sounded like you have you had one final question, no, or if somebody the, in, in the room has one let's question, um, you want to grab questions. the red mic, then the people online can hear you, um, and we'll kind of do that. And probably my guess is we'll be one and done. But okay. What is one thing that you haven't been able to implement yet, either for lack of time or for legal reasons, uh, that you are really excited to implement one day, hopefully? Oh, that's... Holacracy or otherwise. Oh, or anything else. What's interesting, some people ask me about, um, you know, we are where we are today where we have roughly 100, we still have 100, even after the experiment was over, people had a choice to continue doing holacracy or to go back to the hierarchy, and most of them still stuck with the um, with holacracy, and some actually joined. So we still have roughly 120 people uh, in the using holacracy today by choice, uh, 120 yeah, people. Uh, and I sometimes get the question uh, around, am I disappointed that we haven't implemented holacracy across the entire organization or across state government? And I tell people when they ask me that question, it was never my intention to actually try to implement across state government. That's just unrealistic. And even in state, just across my agency, uh, it's, that's not really realistic, right? That's not what I was set out to do. I wanted to, to learn and add information to the, to the community and also to position our state brand as you know, something cool and special. So um, I guess the thing, what I, I wish that um, the state could get to more quickly is I really wish the state could get to more agile mindset more quickly, more than anything else. And the reason is because I think an agile mindset, when I talk about agile mindset, I'm talking about thinking about problems in very small increments, about high, high touch with customers, uh, being able to iterate very quickly and show value really you know, early and often and those, those sorts of things. And I think if the state had more of a pervasive, agile mindset, then things like holacracy would not seem that far-fetched or so foreign. And it would solve a lot of other problems. So that would be probably my one uh, thing I wish was was more. Okay. Okay. Hey. Anything else? No, I we think that it, was great. call it a night. Thank you so much for joining. Yes, it was really you. fun to have you. Yeah, it was fun. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in a month with... Um, another guest and we'll in the same here. same place and uh, that you can find that information at dentthefuture.com slash calendar um, so hopefully we'll see you here and on and on Facebook live thanks okay here's hoping that person doesn't do as well as 30, 30 seconds <laughs> I was hoping that we were going to see